everybody loves a good origin story, don't they? Uh, the, the first great superhero movie was an origin story. Uh, 1978's Superman with Christopher Reeve, where we learn where Superman came from, how he became Superman. And since then, we have had dozens of other origin stories. We've learned about Batman and Spider-Man and Iron Man and Ant-Man and Aquaman and Wonder Woman and Captain America, Captain Marvel, Black Panther, Black Widow, Thor, Hulk, Venom, the Overseer, and a bunch more. We just can't get enough these stories. And I think the thing we love about origin stories is seeing how a superhero or a hero gained their powers and what events occurred that led him or her to uh, dedicate their life to heroic work. Now, a big part of an origin story is also introducing the hero's nemesis, the villain. And, and sometimes they just last for one movie. Sometimes they last for, you know, five or ten movies. And it's always interesting seeing the conflict between the hero and the villain. Well, we are starting a series today on the book of Ezekiel. We have that graphic. Yeah, it's called Dry Bones. Ezekiel was one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And uh, as we read this book, I encourage you to read it. It's kind of a long book, but maybe take, take a few days, a few weeks to read it. It is one of the wildest books in the whole Bible. Um, it has all kinds of crazy visions and symbolic uh, dreams, but it's an important book. And Ezekiel's an important prophet. And, and if I were to write an origin story for Ezekiel, it might sound something like this. Okay, the setting is Jerusalem in the 7th century B.C. Young Ezekiel is preparing to be a priest in the temple there in Jerusalem. One day, Ezekiel hears a commotion in the temple, and he gathers with the crowd to hear the most unpopular person in all of Israel, the prophet Jeremiah, who is railing against, yelling at the priests, warning the people that if they don't repent, that God is going to destroy the temple. And the priests and their apprentices all boo, Jeremiah, boo! And, and one of the priests... Pasher orders him beaten and put in stocks. But young Ezekiel thinks, what if God sent Jeremiah? What if Jeremiah is right? Fast forward, Ezekiel turns 25 and finds out that Jeremiah was telling the truth. And the nation of Babylon comes and invades Israel. And they take King Jehoiakim into exile in Babylon, along with many of Israel's uh, leading citizens, including Ezekiel, including Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ezekiel doesn't know this at the time, but he will spend the rest of his life in exile as a refugee in Babylon. And five years into his time in Babylon, around the time of his 30th birthday, he is sitting by a river there in Babylon. And he has a vision, and he is given a mission. And this vision is revealed to us in the first couple chapters of Ezekiel. 
And uh, if this were a movie, we'd cue, we'd needle drop the song Wheel in the Sky by Journey. Because his vision is of these four living creatures in the sky who have wings and wheels going. And above the living creatures is a throne. And one seated on it in the likeness of, human, of a human is seated on that throne. And we're told that it's an appearance of the glory of God. And that's all described in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, God begins to speak to Ezekiel. And we're going to pick up the story there. So if you're able, please stand as we read. And if you're like me, this is a little bit of a longer reading, and, and you have trouble listening to long passages. Here's an active thing what you can do while I read this. Uh, I want you to count how many times some uh, variation of the word rebel is used in these verses. Okay? Ready? Here we go. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a scroll, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. This is God's word for God's people and for the good of the world. Please be seated. Well, this passage clues us into the three main pieces of Ezekiel's origin story. It tells us about the villain, about the task, and about the hero. And we're going to start with the first one, the, the villain in this story. Now often, a good villain is one that you don't expect. And in fact, the villain in this story comes with a twist. Because what you'd expect is that the bad guys in this story are the Babylonians, the invading army, right? The Babylonians, they were terrible people. They worshiped all kinds of gods other than Yahweh, the one true God. And they practiced human sacrifice of their own children. They were always making war, making slaves of other nations if they didn't kill them first. They have all the makings of a good bad guy. But God says in verse 3 
I send you to the people of Israel. Israel. Which means that the villain in Ezekiel's story is his own people. His own neighbors there in Babylon. Israel, of course, is the people that God had chosen out of all the nations of the world to be his people, to be like him. He's the one that he gave the law and the prophets to. But we find out here that even though they are the privileged people, they are not a godly people at this point in their history. God says that they're a nation of what? Rebels. Rebels. And further on in Ezekiel, God makes much more specific accusations and actually compares them to Babylon. In, in chapter 16, he talks about their idolatry, their child sacrifice. He says this, he said, You took my gold and my silver, which I had given you, made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. You took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed for them to be slaughtered. Pretty graphic stuff, huh? Christopher Wright, in his commentary on Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel is ruthless in his exposure of sin in all its gruesome forms because he was faced with people who refused to acknowledge their own sin, who had a self-congratulatory view of their own history, who assumed a kind of benevolent blindness of their, of, on the part of their covenant Lord, and who believed that they had an absolute and eternal right to the privileges of land, city, and temples. Ezekiel's tirade against Israel's sin was necessary to bring at least some of his listeners to a more realistic assessment of their condition and thereby to a genuine repentance. See, God doesn't want the villain to remain the villain for long. Israel thinks they're the hero, but they're going to be shocked to find out that they are the villain at this point in the story. Now, what if, what if the villain today is not out there, but maybe in here? What if the first job of a Christian minister is to call out the rebellious and disobedient in the pews rather than to call out those in the world. You know, the Apostle Paul says something very interesting in 1 Corinthians 5. He says this, he says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world out there, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm talking about anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. It's interesting. This is, and this is actually a key theme of the Bible, which is not what most people expect, I think, about the church, which is this, that... Judgment and repentance begins in the house of God. It begins here. 
It's not that God never has a word for those outside of the church, outside of the covenant, but it begins in the house of God. Which means we can't assume that just because we are here, that we are Christians, or we're living godly lives. The church is an essential part of the Christian life. But going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Right? Are you doing religion while your heart is far from God? Are you professing to love God while you secretly hate your neighbor? Are you pretending to be faithful to God while your real God is money or power or pleasure? If you answer yes to any of those questions, the book of Ezekiel calls you to repent, return to the Lord, who is always there waiting. You don't want to be the villain in God's telling of history. Okay, so now God establishes the villain in the story. He then gives Ezekiel his task. And the task comes in the form of a scroll. In verse 10, we see that the scroll has writing on the front and the back of it and contains three kinds of messages. It says words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Not happy words, are they? Lamentation, mourning, and woe. And Really, these are not the kinds of messages you would expect God to send to people in exile. People who had just lost a war. You know, I'd expect God to send more of a message of hope, right? And maybe an assurance of his presence and power. Something like this. Hey, refugees, I I know that you've been kicked out of the promised land. That all the other nations that think that since you're defeated, that I'm defeated. But don't worry. I'm still here. I'm still on my throne. I'm going to rescue me. It's going to be okay. I'm going to rescue you. It's going to be okay. That is not the message that God gives to Ezekiel, is it? He tells Ezekiel that his task is to tell a bunch of people who think they are faithful that they are actually rebels. That word rebel is used in some form. How many times in chapter 2? Seven times in seven verses. Repeats it over and over. Why? Why is God repeating himself so much? (laughs) And I think because he's saying something about the hardness of their hearts. He's telling Ezekiel that people haven't learned their lesson. Even after repeated prophets have been sent to them to warn them. Even though they are in exile, they are still hardened against God. And then here's the kicker. God tells Ezekiel what the result of his prophetic work is going to be. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to want to do what you say by and large because they are hard-headed and they have stubborn hearts. Well, that doesn't sound like a fun (laughs) task, a fun calling. And here's the thing. God doesn't give Ezekiel a say in his call, does he? Even though Ezekiel was born to be a prophet, God tells him, you're going to be my prophet to the people. Did I say prophet? He was born to be a priest. But God tells him, you're going to be my prophet to these people in exile, and you're going to tell them this bad news. And it's, by the way, it's not going to be easy for you. 
And God tells Ezekiel further down in chapter 3, he says, if you don't speak my warnings to these people, their blood will be on your head. Right? If, you, if you don't warn them, I will include you in the judgment that I'm going to pour out on them if they don't repent. Yikes. Doesn't Ezekiel get a say in the matter? I mean, couldn't God have given him, you know, here's a list of possible jobs for you. You can go on and be a priest, or you can be a prophet, or maybe a carpenter, or a black. No. He says, this is what you're going to do. He, you know, we think about Mission Impossible, and the director says, this is your mission, should you choose to accept it. God doesn't add that second part, <laughs> should you choose to accept it. He just says, this is your mission. Ezekiel's given this calling by God and expected to obey or else. And it's a little bit of a catch-22. Because either you obey me and you'll be persecuted because of it, or you disobey me and you will perish with them. By the way, this is a little bit of the catch-22 of modern preachers as well. Right? Either you represent God according to his word, the full counsel of his word, which you may be persecuted for some of the very unpopular parts of it, or you water it down, you soften his word, which makes you a part of the group of false teachers who will be judged for misrepresenting God. Ezekiel's call is to speak bitter words, lamentation, mourning, and woe. And he accepts that call. But he finds that even though that's going to be hard, that there will be a reward. There will be a reward for obeying God. Because what happens when Ezekiel eats the scroll of God's word? He finds that even though it's a bitter message, he finds that it's sweet, sweet as honey in his mouth. That's kind of weird, isn't it? First of all, they asked him to eat the scroll, but then this paper tastes sweet as honey. What, what is that about? Well, ultimately, when we follow God's commands, even when it's hard, even when it's painful, there is always some measure of joy in the long run. There is a sweetness that comes with obedience. I, uh, I spent 11 years in Stillwater planting a church from scratch, and it was hard work. Uh, there were uh, a lot of great things about it, but it was hard work. I tell people that, um, and especially in the first few years of church planting, your experience is a little bit like breaking up with your girlfriend every other week, or really having her break up with you, right? because uh, in, the, in the metaphor, uh, the new people come to the church, and that's what you need, right? You just start with this small core group, and you're just desperate for people to come, and they come, and oh, man, they'd be great in the church, and then they don't come back. Or they come a few times, and then uh, summer comes, and they leave, or they move away, or they become a part of the core group, but then they decide, ah, I'm going to date this girl, and she goes to another church, and I'm going to go there, or any number of reasons. And you're continually ah, disappointed. But we spent 11 years. And on my last Sunday there, 
I remember the overwhelming feeling was not remembering the disappointments. It was not of bitterness. It was of joy. It was of a, a sweetness and a thankfulness for all that God had done and was continuing to do there. We've got the villain, and we've got the task. But what about the hero? Who's the hero in this story? Well, e- Ezekiel is the immediate hero. Why? Because he eats the scroll, which is a way of saying he obeys the call to speak these words, even though they're bitter, that God has called him to speak. Ezekiel's superpower is obedience. That's it. He doesn't have x-ray vision. He can't fly. He doesn't have super strength. He doesn't have superhuman speed. He doesn't have an invisibility cloak. He just obeys. He obeys God. And that is enough. That's enough. That's God, all God asks him to do. And it's simple. But it's also not easy. And guess what? Obedience is a requirement and a supernatural act for you and me as well. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, love and obedience go together. They go together. If you love God, you will want to obey him. And what does that look like practically? Well, start, start with the Ten Commandments. And, and all that, uh, all, which covers a lot of situations and a lot of different actions. I love that our children are learning the Ten Commandments in their classes. A few years ago, Ricky and I preached a, a series on the Ten Commandments called The Laws of Freedom. And you can listen to it on the website. But let's keep it simple. And let's just talk about two commandments that God gives. Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's one. And then he also says, love your enemies. So between the two, that's, that's everybody, right? Whether you like them or not. Love everybody all the time. Friend or foe. What does that look like, to love my neighbor like I love myself? Well, it means taking time to make sure the people around you are doing well. Even the ones you don't really like or disagree with. It means helping meet their needs sometimes when appropriate. It means actually praying for them when you say, I'll pray for you. Now, this can be tricky at times. Remember years ago, uh, had, we lived next door to a family who was from Brazil, and I was talking to the, the husband, the dad, and he was telling me about how he's going to take his family to Brazil for a couple weeks in the summer, and the summer was coming up, and, and then summer came, and uh, there's a point in the summer where I sort of realized that I hadn't seen anybody there, and there were no cars in the driveway, and I thought, oh, they must be on vacation, and, but their grass was getting high. So I, w- I needed to mow my yard, and so I said, well, I'll just, I know they don't have a service, they do it themselves, I'll just mow it while they're out of town, probably won't even notice, but it's a neighborly thing to do. So I mow my yard, and then I go on, and I start to mow their yard, and halfway through, their oldest daughter comes out and says, um, you don't have to do that. Oops. 
And what I had intended as an act of love actually became kind of an insult to them. Oh, he doesn't think we keep our yard good enough. They were not on vacation. Oi. Well, we will not ever love our neighbors perfectly, but God wants us to try. And it really is a kind of superpower, since we have the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit in us, giving us the strength and the ability to love others. Well, Ezekiel is a hero because he is obedient and suffers from, for the sake of God's word. But he's also a limited hero because he's unable to stop what's coming. He's, although he can speak it and warn the people, he cannot keep them from experiencing judgment. He can only God deliver God's word to them. Many of them would stay in exile for many years after he prophesied to them. See, Ezekiel really points to a greater hero, to the one sitting on the throne in the likeness of a human, uh, the final prophet of Israel who was also a priest and also a king. And Jesus is the very word of God himself. And his greatest superpower was also obedience. Now, Jesus actually had superpowers. He could miraculously heal people. He could turn water into wine and walk on water. He could multiply food. And yet, over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that his main mission in life is to obey the Father. Simply to obey the Father. John 14, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Philippians 2, Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law and did so not only for himself, but also for his people, for us. We, when you become a Christian, you get not only forgiveness for your sins, but you get everything good that Jesus ever did accounted to you, imputed to you. Uh, Shortly before his death in 1937, the great theologian J. Gresham Machen sent a telegram to one of his close friends. It was a very short telegram. It simply wrote this. He said, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ, no hope without it. See, Machen understood even our greatest works are like filthy rags. We need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We need his perfect obedience put on our record. Jesus is the great hero that all the prophets point to because Only he is able not only to warn us of judgment, but to also save us from judgment. And on the cross, justice and mercy kiss. Jesus received the judgment due to us, and we got mercy. He got the bitter taste of lamentation, woe, and mourning, but we got the sweet taste of forgiveness and grace.
We were the rebels that Jesus died to bring out of exile. And to risk being cheesy, he's not the hero that we deserve, but he is the hero that we need. There's no life apart from him, and there's no condemnation when you are with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of those who have gone before us, those who lived by faith, trusting in not just their uh, temporary circumstances, but in the coming kingdom, in the coming city of God. We're thankful, or we are thankful that you sent the prophets not only to Israel, but for us to learn from. And we thank you that uh, you have told us what we need to know for life and godliness and have warned us of a coming judgment. We pray, Holy Spirit, now that you would give us the faith to live as becomes the followers of Christ, to live as the people of God, obedient, even when it's hard. And thank you most of all for sending Jesus to be our Savior, to be our prophet, priest, and king, to take away the written record of debt that was against us, and to give us eternal life in him. I pray this in his name.